Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. I want you to think of something that might be hard for you right now in the mindset that we're in. Some of you were at the beach last week. Some of you are getting ready to go to the beach. You just, maybe all through the month, the summer, you just kind of got beach brain. Totally get that. It's like 90 degrees outside. But can you remember the last time it snowed in Raleigh? Can you remember that? I remember it vividly. Do you know why? It was the week we were supposed to have our grand opening at this campus. And it was December 9th. We got somewhere, depending on where you were at, 10 to 12 inches of snow that weekend. For those of you who think I'm making this up, I brought a picture to remind you. Here's a picture that was sent to me that weekend. The guy who sent that to me said, you didn't get snowproof church signs. I'm like, yeah, I didn't know we needed them. And here, here we are in Raleigh, and uh, it snowed. It dumped snow on us. I should have known it was going to happen. We had uh, come to the place where we were moving to this building, and God did amazing stuff. We brought two churches together to be one, to connect people to Jesus for life change. And what had happened was we were two churches talking we had two different elder teams. Every time we got together, the first three times we got together, it snowed. Now, if you're not from Raleigh, that's not normal, just so you know. And we got together, like, not just like days apart, like months apart. Like, we got together, didn't get together, didn't snow, snowed. Didn't get together, snowed. And so we joked with each other about this verse from the Old Testament in First Chronicles, where it talks about this guy. He's got a hard to pronounce name. All of his relatives are hard to pronounce. It's in First Chronicles chapter 11, it's Benaiah. And he chases a lion into a pit on a snowy day. And we said, what courageous thing to do. And we're not going to fight a lion in a pit, but this is courageous. And so we're doing a courageous thing. And I was thinking about that weekend. It wasn't like intentional by me, but nobody really showed up at the campus, I know, because I came up here. And there was, there was one other family from our small group that was up here. We played on the snow hill that was here. It was coming down like crazy. And the courageous thing I tried to do is I tried to snowboard on a bodyboard, and I brought the video for you. So we got it. Kids are cheering for me. And that's how it went. That's how it went. Thank you for rejoicing in my pain. I appreciate that. That's opposite of what the Bible says, but that's okay. We're cool. We're it says rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. You're laughing at me is rejoicing with my mourning. But anyways, what I think if we would do with the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today has us do, it would require incredible courage. Because what happened that day after I did the snow, you know, fall, wipe out up here, we got home. I didn't want to do anything. Like, my feet are all wet. It's snowy. My kids wanted to go out and build stuff still. And so I went, they went out. I got dry socks, all that stuff. They went out in the yard. They're trying to build a snow fort in the front yard. And they had these little snowballs they were, they were putting together. And I'm like, my girls were born in the south. Like, they don't have any idea what they're doing. And so I walked. I'm from Michigan. Here's the deal. If you're from Michigan, you know that you're basically an Eskimo. Like, you just, you just know how to build. You can build igloos. Like, you don't even have to show you. You can just do it. And so I go out there, and I see their little perimeter of snowballs, and in between the trees, they're trying to build a fort. And I'm thinking, if we got in a snowball fight, what's that going to do? You're going to trip over it. It's not blocking anything. And so I said, what are you building? And I grabbed big snow. It was packing snow, if you remember that. Built big balls and rolled it up. And they're like, build me a snowman. Build this. Like, they're wanting to build all this stuff. But I was thinking about it in light of our passage today, and us coming together as a church. And I wonder if God, as our Father, ever looks at what we do as a church and thinks, what are you building? What are you doing? Because that's not what I talked about in the Bible. We do a lot of stuff as American tradition. We do a lot of stuff just because we've been shaped by our culture. And 
You ever think of, like Jesus said to Peter in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, he says, Peter, before the church even existed, Jesus was talking about the church. He says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. You're like, man, that's a pretty powerful force. The, church, the gates of hell can't prevail against the church. But then let me just give you some statistics. In America, every year, somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 churches close. You think about what many non-believers think of the church, what's shaped in the news. By the way, that's not a great source to figure out what you think about Christianity, but it does have a big voice. And so most people think what happens at church is it's just a bunch of chauvinistic, racist people that get together and they talk about the only lives they care. They don't care about black lives. Black lives don't matter. Other lives don't matter. As long as they don't kill the babies that are in the womb, we'll preach about that and then we'll give some homophobic message. Like that's what they think is happening here in this gathering, by the way. Is that what God intended? But you just think about, too, there are people sitting next to you last week in this building that are sitting in another building this week checking out another church because we didn't have what they were looking for. They wanted a specific program, a specific song song. They wanted a specific something. And that's how many of us, not just those people that aren't here right now, some of you sitting here right now are going, I just want a church who does my thing, does it my way. And if you look at what God commands in the the New Testament for the church to do, I bet you the things that you want and the things that he commands are not the same. And so what do we do? Here's the courageous thing I want you to dream with me about today as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. What if, what if we would, God's the master builder, so we don't build his church. He says, I will build my church, but he uses you to do it. And the way the New Testament talks about it is you build up his church. What if we would build up God's church God's way? What if we would build up God's church God's way? What would it look like? And we get a glimpse of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 as he rebukes the Corinthians, really, for not doing it his way, for making church about themselves and coming together and even using their, their spiritual gifts to exalt themselves. Now, remember, we've been going through this, this book, 1 Corinthians. It was a letter that was written to this church in Corinth about 2,000 years ago. But you see, maybe you're a guest and you're like, I've got this artwork over here, letters to RDU, got the slides that look like RDU slash ancient mixed thing here. The reason why is because this letter that was written 2,000 years ago has so many parallels to what's happening at Southbridge and Raleigh-Durham as a whole. They're dealing with the same questions, the same struggles, the same temptations. And, and a few weeks ago, we started this section of the letter that was talking about what we're made for, that we're made for worship that God made every one of us for his glory, and that he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth, and what does that look like? And so for the next several chapters, what we've been looking at is, what does it look like in this context? What does it look like in this context? How does it look in communion, which we're going to celebrate later today? And we talked about that day, how you can't have communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, if you don't have union, first with God himself, then with each other. It's not even communion. You can go through the motions, you can eat the cracker, drink the juice, but God's going, what you celebrate is not communion if you don't have union with me and union with one another. Think about the American church. Do we even know one another? And then, then we looked at spiritual gifts, how each one of us as a follower of Jesus is given a supernatural gift, but it's for the sake of building up the church and glorifying God's name. And then last week, it was like we jumped up to 30,000 foot, and we stopped talking about any of that stuff, but it wasn't true. We were talking about that stuff. We were talking about love, spirit, Holy Spirit-empowered love that you can only experience as a follower of Jesus, that if you get it right, everything in your life matters. If you get it wrong, nothing, even dying as a martyr, doesn't matter. And then look at what it says this week, chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that it may prophesy. And as we keep going, what we're going to see is that Paul continually throughout this chapter kind of contrasts 
what's a big controversy at this time, and has been controversial throughout the life of the church, the history of the church, even in recent years, these two gifts, the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues. The mistake a lot of people make is they think this chapter is all about that contrast. That's just the context that he's speaking into, but the commands that he's giving are things like what it says right at the beginning, pursue love. And the reason why we're talking about building up the church is because if you just see them through, if you brought your own copy of the Bible, we'll read these verses in a little bit. But look at verse 2. It talks about being built up. Verse 4, two times, talks about being built up. Verse 5, built up. Verse 12, built up. Verse 17, verse 26, they're all talking about building up. But what you can't miss is this first command that happens in these first two words. Pursue love. And the danger is, just like we talked about last week, we talk about love and it's like this mushy thing that's out there. It's really hard to define it. We can look up Webster's. We can look up dictionary.com. We can do all that stuff, talk about what love means. But we're not talking about love like this culture oftentimes thinks of. Think about it in our culture. We'll have, we have a book or a movie like Fifty Shades of Grey, and they'll call that making love. That's pornography. That's not love. You have people to talk about, I fall into love, I fall out of love. That doesn't seem like what we're reading about in 1 Corinthians 13. It's just this fickle thing that happens and kind of blows like the wind through your life and you talk about we love tacos and we love Jesus. I don't think that's the same thing. And so at best where we're at with love is that we lack clarity on what it is. But we talked about last week, and so what happens in chapter 14 is a natural outcome of what we talked about last week, that what we're talking about is a supernatural, spirit-empowered love that you can only experience when you have the Holy Spirit. It's so important. It's not number one priority in your life. It informs all of the priorities in your life. It's the thing that if you get it right, everything matters. You get it wrong, nothing matters. And so what we have here is this command to pursue love. It's that kind of love. And so if we want to build God's church God's way, the first point is this. It's really our main point today. You must pursue spirit-empowered love. You must. You want to build God's church God's way, you must pursue spirit-empowered love. And you see it here in the very first word of the chapter, pursue. The Greek word there means to hunt, to chase after. Think about those of you who've hunted, you've gone on a, a pursuit of something that was valuable. Like, think about this. If, can you imagine... If I said to you, I knew where something was located that would meet all of your needs, some of you have health issues, or the fountain of youth, financial issues, maybe it's a pot of gold, the end of a rainbow, would meet all of your needs, all of your desires, would make everything in your life matter, wouldn't you hunt for that? Like, go after that? Like, if I said, here's the GPS coordinate, you'd figure out how to get there. Or you'd find that thing. I was reading this week about this treasure that was, it's a modern day treasure. Like, I don't know if you watch Indiana Jones as a kid or anything like that, but just like this adventure of treasure hunting. And I just saw this, it was one of those articles that just pops up on Google for me, like they'll have these like suggested articles to read, and it was called Fen's Treasure. If you wanna look up Wikipedia, feel free to do so. I'm not offended. I'll think you're reading your Bible. Just keep looking spiritual while you do it, all right? Fen's Treasure was this treasure that was buried by this guy named Forrest Fen. He's a Vietnam War vet. And what happened was in 1988, he got diagnosed with cancer. And he's not only a Vietnam War vet and an author and a poet, but he's also an art collector. And he's got all these ancient artifacts and collections, and he's done really well financially. And he said, I was laying in bed one night just thinking about how he was going to die. And he thought how much fun he had had in his life putting this art collection together and all the artifacts he had. And he said, wouldn't it be fun if I took those things, put them in a treasure chest, and had other people search for them? And so they'd have the quest, the fun, of looking for these things as well. And so he bought what he called a bronze chest that was way too expensive, is the way he said it. And he took some gold coins and put them in there, took some diamonds and put them in there, 
took this 17th century emerald ring, put it in there, some documents, various things. The estimated value of the treasury put together is somewhere between $2 million and $5 million. But he didn't do anything with it, and he lived. He didn't die of cancer. But in 2010, he thought, it'd still be fun to bury this thing and have people go look for it. And so somewhere, those of you who are taking notes and are going to go do something different with your life after this, somewhere north of Santa Fe, New Mexico, he drove out into the mountains on an unspecified day. He wouldn't say when. You can't go to like Google satellite and see when he left his house or anything. Don't be a weird stalker. Some people have. And uh, he went and he buried this thing out in the mountains there. To date, over 350,000 people have gone looking for it. In 2013, he went on the Today Show and talked about a self-published book that he, he had that was selling at that time about 25 copies a month. And he said, the way to find the treasure, the clues are in the book. It started selling 25 copies per minute <laughs> then. And here's what you'll find if you start reading about this. Some of you look it up on Wikipedia. I saw your eyes go down when I said it. People have died looking for this. Four people have died knowingly in the pursuit of this. People have sold, uh, emptied their savings accounts, sold houses, lost marriages to pursue this thing. And you've got to ask yourself the question, why? If you knew there was a thing, that if you got it, it would mean everything, then you'd lose everything to try and get it. That's what Paul's talking about here when he says pursue love. Because think about the love that we've talked about. Just scan back through the Bible. If you brought a copy of the Bible, chapter 12, verse 31, sets up chapter 13. And it says, this is the best way. This is the, this is the way to live your life. This is the most excellent way, is the exact language that he uses. Then chapter 13, you read verses 1 through 3. And what does it say in verses 1 through 3? Hey, I can have all the gifts in the world. I can do incredible things, move mountains. I can give my life as a martyr, and it's all a wasted life if I don't have this thing. Then chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, say the descriptions of it, paint a picture of this love. It's patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. keeps no record of wrongs. It does not seek its own way. You're like, this is pretty awesome. It's Jesus' love for you, by the way. It's being described there. It's a picture of the love that pursued you. And then verses 8 through 13 talk about this love's never going to, it's eternal. It never ends. Faith is great. Hope's great. But the greatest is love. And so the natural outcome is this command then in chapter 14 and verse 1, of course, and that's the kind of love we're talking about. Not just this fluffy love that's out there, but spirit-powered, supernatural love. Go after that. Pursue that. Hunt it. Chase it. And this command that's given here, it's present tense. Oh, okay, that's fine. Grammar. You're a nerd. Got it. Mm -hmm. Now, here's what you need to know about the present tense. Present tense is the continuous tense. And that means it's always the present tense. It's the present tense now. Now. Look at how this is happening. It's still the present tense. Do you see this? It's continuing. And so when you have a present tense command in the New Testament, it's not something you do one time. It's something you continue to do. You're continually pursuing this love. My wife and I, when we got engaged, I got down on my knee. I said everything that I could say romantic, every bone in my body that had any romance in it, I was squeezing it out. I want to get that yes answer. I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to her. We, I videotaped it. We were out in this special spot. She said yes, by the way. I wouldn't be telling you this story. And, and you know what? When I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I said, I want to do this kind of love. Patience, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, doesn't keep record of wrongs. So you know what that means? That means if tomorrow night I say, hey, let's go out on a date. And she takes a little longer than I do to get ready. And I'm ready to go. I'm like, let's, she can't get her makeup on fast enough. I'm, I'm impatient. She's like, you said you were going to be patient. <laughs> I said that like 20 years ago, honey. We got that covered. Check the box, all right? We're good. 
Or if I keep bringing, she does something that bothers me, did, you know, say she didn't do this, well, say she drove into our garage door, and then for 15 years, I'm like, do you remember the time you drove into our garage door? And she says, you said love keeps no record of wrongs. I'd be like, well, I covered that 20 years ago when I asked you to bring, like, we're good. Like, that's it. Got it. Found, it'd be, sometimes we treat this pursuing love like it's a treasure in a field, and once I find it, quest is over. Now, this is a present tense command. You're continually pursuing this love, but here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. There are many people in this world that are pursuing to be loved. What Paul's talking about here is to give this kind of love. There are a lot of people that are looking for their boss to give them some affirmation. They want mom and dad to say that they've done well. They're looking for love in some place through a relationship, their dating relationship, their marriage relationship. I just want to be loved. We're crying out for love. But when it says here to pursue love, it's not talking about to go be loved. It's talking about to give this kind of love that you've already received. So if you are here last week, remember I mentioned... You can't give something you haven't received. And I jumped down in the front row. I thought the front row would be totally full today, by the way. You were here last week. I, I was using an illustration of cash. And I said, you know, if, you, if I want you to give cash to somebody in the back row, but you don't have any cash, you can't give the cash. So I gave the guy cash. I hope you use that cash well, Drew. Come on, man. He's in the front row. He knows he might get paid today. <laughs> but the point was, you can't give what you haven't received. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Paul's making the assumption you've received this love that was just talked about in chapter 13. This love that comes after pursuing you. What kind of love is it? What, this is the chapter 13 that we're being told to, to pursue this love. Chapter 13, verse 7. This is the love that bears all things. We didn't talk about this last week. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's an unconditional love. That's a love that loves through everything. That's a limitless love. I was talking with a friend this week about this love. We were talking about the gospel, and, and uh, we were having lunch, and, and I said, you know, every once in a while you hear stories about pastors that have some moral failure, and they were preaching against adultery, but then they were going to see a prostitute, and it's like this ridiculous story. I said, could you imagine if God told a pastor to go marry a prostitute? And he's like, I'd be checking the caller ID on that one, like, is what, exactly what he said to me. He goes, I'm sure that's God, because most of us say God wouldn't do that, and I said, but he did. It's in Hosea. It's an Old Testament prophet of his. It's God's man. He speaks on behalf of God. And that's what prophecy is, by the way. We'll talk about that in just a minute. It's when you speak on behalf of God. And so this guy who speaks God's words to people, God tells, I want you to go marry a whore, is the way it says it in Hosea chapter 1, in her whoredom. She's going to keep prostituting herself. And she's going to be unfaithful to you. And then you get to chapter 3. It says, when she's all used up, and she's not sexually desirable anymore because she's been so used up by everybody else. And she's being sold on the slave market for labor that I want you to buy her back and to bring her into your house and treat her like your wife. And here's why, chapter 3 tells us, because I want my people to know that's how I love them. And they keep committing spiritual adultery on me, following after other gods, whether it's your job, it's their family, it's religion, it's all these different things, it's their substances they're addicted to, it's all this stuff. But then they expect me to just keep taking them back, and I do. Do you know what 1 Corinthians says? That you were bought with a price. And so you are loved with an unconditional love. And as you pursue this love, it's to, where are ways I can give that kind of unconditional love out that I've received? It's not just that, though. It's also... A, a relentless love. Like, look at even the first couple words in, in chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. It's patient. Remember we talked about patience, not just waiting. God's patient like that too. He's not willing that any would perish, Second Peter 3, 9. But patience is when you're wrong, you don't retaliate when you have the ability to do so. And remember, that's the kind of the inactive 
a description of this love, but then the active is kindness. Kindness is the opposite. Kindness is it's pursuing to be generous. So someone wronged you and then you go do something positive for them? Yeah, that's the kind of love that Jesus had when he came after you. He talks about it in, in uh, Luke chapter 15. There's some religious people that are really think they're uptight. They think Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd. And Jesus tells them, here's why I hang out with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and all these people that you hate and you won't want to come to your church. Um, it's because I came after sinners. And he says, imagine there's a shepherd and he's got a hundred sheep and one of them leaves. And I thought to myself, I'm not a shepherd, I'm a city boy. But I'd be like, all right, peace out, sheep. We'll get a, one of them was going to get pregnant. We'll get back to quota. We'll be good. But in their mind, they knew agriculture better than I do. They knew the Bible better than most of us. They knew that a shepherd, of course a shepherd would go after a sheep, even at great risk to his own life. And I think about in 1 Samuel chapter 17 when David's going to fight Goliath and King Saul, who should be fighting Goliath, says to David, here, you're not able. And he's already been discouraged by his brothers. You're just out here to see a show. He's already had his motives questioned. And then Saul tells him, you're not able. You're not equipped to do this. And he says, no, when I was a shepherd and a lion would come and steal one of the sheep, I would chase the lion down and kill it. And I think to myself, that's how much, like, you go after a sheep, like, risk your own life? That's the kind of relentless love that Jesus has for you when he came after you to save you. And then I think about us. How many of us here would risk anything to love somebody else in this room? Maybe your spouse even, but what about people that you don't live in the same house with? There are people in our church that love like this, but you know the vast majority of people come to church and they think, I need somebody to pursue me. I don't, have, I don't have anybody coming after me. Well, I don't know anybody because, well, nobody invited me to lunch. Why don't you invite somebody to lunch? You gotta pers- it means making yourself vulnerable, which we perceive as risk, because what if we get rejected? But that's what it is to pursue love. Some of you, you won't share the gospel at your work because it's against the rules. You work for the school district. And so do you bow your knee to the school district or to Jesus Christ? Because those people's lives, are, they're headed for eternity without Jesus. And you're, maybe you work for IBM, and it's like, well, I might lose my pension. Like, is God, Jehovah God the provider, or is IBM the provider? And it takes risk to love like that. We say, oh, we read about Daniel doing it in the Bible, but I would put in your context. Like, what does it look like to love? And then you put yourself out there vulnerably and say they didn't respond. Relentlessly, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Or maybe it's just the context of this when we gather together and the way we serve one another, that instead of making it about ourselves, that we're actually doing it for the sake of the other. Because that's what Paul's rebuking in chapter 14. It's why he starts with pursue this spirit-empowered love because spirit-empowered love builds up the body of Christ. You want a sub-point? Those of you who like to take notes, a little outline for you. Spirit-empowered love builds up the body of Christ. That's what we see starting in verse 2. I read you verse 1 already. Verse 2 says this. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God. To speak in a tongue is to speak in a language that's not learned by you. It could be another language that's a known language on this earth, or it could be what some people call a heavenly language, which nobody on this earth understands while you're speaking it. It's for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That's what we'd hope would happen. Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, which isn't bad when you're alone, but when you're in a gathering, it's bad. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. He's not against tongues. He's against their misuse of tongues. 
but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up, in which case speaking in tongues will be the same as prophecy. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, and he uses three illustrations to make the same point, which I love. I'm a little slow on the uptake sometimes. Even lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp, do not give distinct notes. How will anyone know what is played? It changes. If a bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for the battle? So with yourselves. And now he talks about known languages. If your tongue, you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the languages, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. In other words, it makes no sense. It might have meaning, it just makes no sense to me. Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And so here he takes these two gifts, tongues and prophecy, and he contrasts these two gifts. Prophecy is when you speak on behalf of God to people. Think about prayer. Prayer is a lot of times like, share your prayer needs, and we'll speak to God on behalf of people. But what prophecy is, and prophecy it can be something like God just lays on your heart in the moment, spontaneous, like that person needs to hear this, and it's a word from God to these people. Or it could be like you're reading your Bible on Tuesday. It's like when I get to church, Michelle needs to hear this, Doug needs to know that, Tom needs to, and, you're, and it's, it could be at that moment. You're going to give them that pro- on behalf of God to people. Tongues is when you speak a language that's not known to you. And we see it throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, the first place we see tongues is in Genesis chapter 11, and it's a sign of judgment. In the Old Testament, tongues was a sign of judgment, condemnation, and because of sinfulness. In Genesis chapter 11, what's happening is the passage that is oftentimes referred to if you're in Sunday school and they're doing flannel graph. You remember that? Stick little things up on the board. They're doing that. It's the Tower of Babel passage. Here's what's happening in that passage. People are trying to build a reputation for themselves for their own glory, and what God does is he judges them and gives them different languages. That's why we have different languages now to confuse them so they couldn't all work together. It was judgment in their lives. But in the New Testament tongues, it's a sign of redemption. And what we see, we see the reverse of Genesis chapter 11 and Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, what happens is the birth of the church. And what happens is there's these people there that are followers of Jesus and the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they speak in known languages, but they're not known to the speaker. And so what you see is there are people that are all gathered there at that time for a festival from all over the the known world at that time to worship in one spot, and they start hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came, died for sin, rose from the dead, offers life to anybody who places faith in him, and they're hearing it in their native tongue. And they go, we we hear this in our own, our native, they were multilingual people that are going, that's my native tongue that I'm hearing, and that guy doesn't know my native tongue, and that was the miracle. Here, what Paul's talking about appears to be a gift where they weren't speaking a known language, but they were speaking a heavenly language, connecting with God, and it would build themselves up, and some people think that doesn't exist anymore. I get that, and there's some of you here that might think that that's true. I totally understand that. We can have fellowship with one another. It doesn't decide whether you go to heaven or not. I would disagree with you because I would say, what do you do with verse 39 where it says, do not forbid speaking in tongues? What do you do in verse 5 when it says there that I wish everyone would speak in tongues, but even better would be prophecy because of building up. The problem was the misuse of the gift because they weren't using it to build up. The Corinthians were making the gift all about themselves and saying things like, if you speak in tongues, that shows you're spiritually mature. And they're acting like everyone should have this gift. Now here's the reality. There's no gift that everyone has. 
We use the gifts together, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, as a manifestation of the Spirit, which is also said in chapter 14, verse 12, manifestation of the Spirit for the sake of building up the church. Their problem was they were misusing the gift. And you think about that. Remember the week when we started talking about gifts? I told you that my mother-in-law and father-in-law had given me a car buffer and told me it was for back rubs. That's a misuse of a gift, okay? There's certain things that you have, and they have a use, and if you use them the way they were meant to be used, that's good. If you use them a way that they weren't meant to be used, that can be dangerous. Yes, I know there's a guy on the stage, for all of you that are trying to make that noticeable to me, it's because I know some of you are visual learners. And so think about that. We've got different tools that we use for different things. Uh-oh, some of you are thinking, you've heard some of my stories. Uh-oh, I hear you. You're not sitting in the front still, Steve, so I'm not listening to you. Here we go. That was from last week's joke, those of you who didn't get it. We get a different crowd every week. So we get different tools, different tools here, a saw. This is a saw. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I was instructed by Gary uh, before the service that that's what this is. You use it, it's meant to cut wood, and it will cut wood. Just give me the benefit of the doubt that I measured twice. I'm going to cut once right here and show you how this thing's meant to be used. All right? Boom. Perfect. <laughs> Come on, man. I think that's condescending, but I'm going to take it, all right? <laughs> so that's what the saw, that's what it's meant to be used for, right? That's the tool, cut wood. But think about all the other things you could do with a saw. And I've tried some of these. I've got a can of paint here. It's, I mean, the toolbox is all the way over there with a screwdriver in it or that funky weird-shaped thing they give you at Lowe's to open a paint can. You could probably get this open if you try, right? Oh, pull this back is what you're saying? Is that what you're doing? You know what I'd probably do at home? I'd probably get frustrated. Yeah. The misuse. And y'all have nice clothes on. I don't want to get y'all paint sweater there today. I take a nail. I did, this. I did a practice run on this illustration, by the way. And I thought if I hit this nail, sparks would fly everywhere. But what happened was it shot the nail out of the board up against a wall. And I thought, ooh, that would have been a lawsuit. That's not good. We wouldn't do that. <laughs> if you think about all the things you could do with a saw. Like, if I had an itch probably bad. There's like limitless misuses, right? It's a good thing when it's used right. That was the problem with the spiritual gifts in the church, is that people were miss any gift that you take and you use for your own glory and your own self-exaltation is a misuse of a gift and can cause division in the church. Remember one of the problems with this church? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Well, Paul's really smart. Paulus is a great orator. And I connect with that guy. It caused division in the church. That wasn't what the guys using the gift meant, but they were. They talk about division again. It was in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you can't, I cannot tell you this verse enough times because we need to know this as a church. If we're going to be the church and build up the church the way that God wants to build up the church, it's by putting this into practice. Chapter 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The common good. Not for your own good. The common good. When we're gathered together, that's the context. Hey, when you're alone in your prayer closet, you build yourself up. But when you come to church, it's to build up the body, the common good. What did chapter 14 say? So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit. So the connection. Strive to excel in. doesn't pick a gift. picks a result. The common good, building up the church. And so you think about that, that language there of manifestations of the Spirit. Think about how God made himself known throughout the Bible. So you got like Moses in the Old Testament, burning bush. I don't know if anybody's had a burning bush speak to them here. If so, please go see someone at the information table. We'd love to hear about that. And uh, 
Then you've got the parting of the Red Sea. You've got manna coming from heaven. You've got Isaiah where he's in the throne room of God, the hem of his garment, and there's smoke there, and he hears the angels singing. And then you get to the New Testament. How's God going to manifest himself in the New Testament? John chapter 1, verse 18. No one's seen God, but Jesus came to make him known. So if you want to see what God's like, then look at what Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And so he does miracles, raises people from the dead, walks on water, feeds people this little boy's lunch, opens blind eyes. The transfiguration lets the glory of God come from within, doesn't come upon him, comes from within, out to a few people see, manifesting himself. His death, his resurrection, manifesting himself, which leaves you, when you're reading the Bible, going, well, how's he going to do it in the church? If he did this in the Old Testament and he did that in the, in the Gospels, what's he going to do in the church? And he says right here, when you use your gifts for building up the church, that's a manifestation of the Spirit. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you win elections. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you stop swearing, be moral, solve social issues. No, if you love, and interestingly enough, not love them, love one another. See, if we're going to dare and be courageous to build God's church God's way, we've got to know one another and build one another up. So whatever gift we're using, ultimately, Lord willing, we do what verse 3 says. Did you see verse 3? You build the person up, upbuilding, encouragement, consolation, which is another word for comfort. Can you imagine what it would be like if we came to church, how different American church would be if we came to church with eyes to see what's going on in the lives of the people around us so that we can then use whatever gift God's given us, whatever we've received, to then impact whatever's happening in their life? Can you imagine if you could see people the way that Jesus sees people? And Jesus says, and there's one passage of Scripture in the Gospels where people are gathering around, and it's a crowd. And I just imagine they were well-dressed people there. There were people that were hurting there, people that were tired, people that wanted everybody to think they had it all together, all kinds of people there. And he says he looked at them like they were harassed and helpless. Now, some of them were probably really successful business people and moms who were ready to write books about you should parent your kids just like I parent my kids. And grandparents who were saying, look how successful my family is. And he's going, no, when I look at your heart, I see harassed and helpless. That's a language that's used for a woman who's been raped and beaten and left for dead at the side of the road. That's literally what that language is in the Greek. And that's what he sees. Can you imagine if when you came to church you could see people's issues? I just want to be loved, like written on their forehead. Verbally abusive husband. Unemployed, underemployed, all this financial stress. Like if you could see what's going on, really going on in people's lives. Tons of debt. Dad issues, mom issues, addicted to pornography. Like, can you just imagine if you could see what's going on in people's lives? And then God gave you a gift. Everyone's got at least one. To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. How do we see the manifestation of the Spirit? Chapter 14, verse 12. The building up of the church. See, we are supposed to pursue Spirit-empowered love for the building up of the church. Well, what if I have the gift of tongues? Like some of you here, might, you might know you have the gift of tongues. You might wonder, do I have the gift of tongues? How do I use that? Well, you look at the passage, and the passage tells you the answers. It's very directly stated in here, and so I don't want to discourage you and somehow quench the Spirit. Verse 39 says, don't forbid speaking in tongues. So if you have the gift of speaking in tongues, one clear way is in your own, build yourself up. Verse 4, in your own private language, as you're connecting with God, if that's a way you connect with God, that's great. But if you do it in a corporate setting, whether it's your small group, whether it's here in church, you've got to ask yourself, how is this impacting non-believers? 
We haven't read this verse yet, but verse 23 says, if you, you have a speaking tongues and you don't have interpretation, they're going to think you're out of your mind. I don't know what's going on. That's not a good out of your mind. Hey, they're out of your mind for Jesus. No, it's a bad out of your mind in this passage. It's not, so you've got to consider, what's this gonna, how is this going to impact the people around me? In fact, verse 26 through 40, we're not going to have time to go through all that, but the whole thing is about doing things in order. And so is it orderly there? And, and you should be praying. If you've got the gift of tongues, seek the gift of interpretation. So, you, so it's, it becomes equal to what he says is this greater gift here is the gift of prophecy. Did you see that? He says, he says what is it, verse, uh, verse five, 5? Yeah, pray for interpretation. I want all of you to speak in tongues, but even more prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Then he talks about himself. He says, if I come to you and speak in tongues, I need, some, I need to teach, revelation, prophesy, something. Like, pray that you'd have the gift of interpretation so you could then build up the body with the thing that you have. And so it's not saying not to use the gift, but you've got to think about how you use the gift. And that section on orderly, I don't want you to think because we didn't read that, that I was trying to skip over a controversial verse. And so this is kind of like bonus material. Check out for a minute if you don't want the bonus material. If you want the bonus material, here it is. Verse 34 and 35 says there, women should be silent in church. Like, oh, there it is. I knew that it was chauvinistic in there. You've got to remember this is happening in the context. You've got to read the Bible in the context. Context is, in chapter 11, Paul already said that he knows there's women that prophesy and pray in the church, and he was saying it in a good way. It's not that you, women can't talk in church. What was happening, he's talking about doing things orderly going through that passage. And so when somebody would have a prophecy, then people, probably a team of people, we don't know for sure, probably a team of people would, would decide, is this, is this from the Lord? Is it accurate to Scripture? Does it line up? Do we think these people need this? And they'd make a decision, they'd present it to their body. And what was probably happening is that some of the wives, because what's talked about here is wives specifically, Wives were then questioning their husband's decision in that, which was then also causing confusion for people about, shouldn't you be submitting to your husband? So Paul says, talk to your husband at home about this. You're gonna, let me just give a general principle for Southbridge. Hey, if you're having a fight with your spouse when you come to church, don't announce it to the whole church. Doesn't mean we don't have people that could help you with that, but probably want to deal with that with one another. Probably going to be bad for you for a long time if you announce your problem to the entire church. So he's giving them some practical wisdom in their context here. He's not saying women don't have anything valuable to say. Chapter 11, if you think that's what he's saying. What he's talking about is doing everything orderly, and he gives specific instructions, guidelines, really, for how you can do that with the gift of speaking in tongues, with a prophecy, with these various hymns and songs. But what you end up seeing here is that spirit-empowered love builds up the church, the body of Christ, and spirit-empowered love matures the mind. Look at verse 20. We're supposed to love God with our minds. Look at what it says in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. There's one way to be an infant that's good. It's to be innocent. Your goal is not to know every wicked thing out there and how to do it and the schemes of it. You'd be innocent in that way. But in your thinking, be mature. There's a bad way to be a child. It's to be self-centered. Kids are self-centered. We give them grace in that. We just, they don't know any better. But it, when you grow as a believer, as you grow spiritually, it's to be mature in your thinking. It makes us think of a passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 12, and verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does that mean to have a renewed mind? It means there's a problem. It needs to be dealt with, reconstructed, fixed, renewed. And so I'm going to guess most of you have seen HGTV or DIY or Perfect Cuts here. And what happens in those shows is somebody goes in to a house, Joanna Gaines, the Property Brothers, whoever it is. They go, usually they go into houses that's like nobody's lived there for about 30 years. 
about 50 cats lived there, probably, the way they act like it smelled. And then there's like some hoarder was there at one point because there's just stuff like piled up everywhere. And then all of a sudden they're like, here's what we need to do. And they cast a vision like, remove that wall. And like, how do they, does the house still stand? They took out all the walls, laid down a new floor, computer program, and 30 minutes later, boom, there's a new house. It needed to be renewed, reconstructed. Our minds need that. Why? Because we're depraved. And our hearts are deceptive and wicked, and we usually think better of ourselves than is actually true, and we have no idea how much we're actually being conformed to this world until it gets exposed by God's Word. And so how are we actually transformed? I'll give you another passage. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, a second letter, uh, it's actually a third letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, so that's how you're transformed, is when you behold His glory beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, but it doesn't happen in 30 minutes. Sorry. Let me read the rest of the verse. From one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord. Who builds the church? Who is the Spirit? So the way that we become transformed, we want to be mature in our minds, seeking this Spirit-empowered love, is by beholding His glory. Okay, how do we behold His glory? Is that like you just look up at the screen up here and we read a verse? Like, how does that… Did you hear the passage we read today? So chapter 14, verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church, we behold His glory, manifestation of the Spirit, when we use our God-given gifts for the common good, the building up of one another. So practical application is then, how do we love each other? How can we pursue one another with the love that Jesus Christ pursued us? How can we come with eyes to see the needs of other people in this congregation so that they can know Jesus more and be transformed from one degree to another? That's the application. I wonder, I just wonder if God as a father ever comes, like I came to that fort for my little girls. What are you building? Like it's these when we go to church and some of us think we're checking our box and God's going, we're glad you showed up. Like here's a point for you in heaven. That's not how it works, by the way. I wonder if he ever looks at it, what we do when we get together and is like, what are you guys doing? Like, you know what? The manifestation of the Spirit is when you Spirit-empowered love with one another. Tongues, prophecy, knowledge, mercy, leadership, administration, all that. How will you use yours? Thank you for joining our sermons online. We hope to see you in person soon. Our location and service times can be found at our website, sfchurch.com. If God has stirred your heart today and you'd like someone to pray with, or if you'd like more information about Jesus, please take a moment and email us at info at sfchurch.com. Thank you again. God bless.